Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 55. I'm Mike Uptograph. And I'm Joshua Klein. And uh, again, we've been going and doing a mini-series working through David Pye's The Nature and Art of Workmanship, chapter by chapter. Uh, we have heard, uh, it's pretty cool, we've heard from a number of listeners who have uh, written to us or called us. Hey, Wes, good to hear from you yesterday. Um, a number of listeners who are really enjoying the series, and I can't tell you how much we're enjoying going through this book, um, mm-hmm. kind of going with a fine-tooth comb and pulling out uh, all the nuggets of wisdom and deep thought in here, uh, and just hopefully presenting it in a way that's uh, compelling, in a way that really gets to the heart of what Pi was trying to say. Because uh, this is a valuable book. It's good stuff to think about. Yeah, and if you if you are not yet following along, go grab your copy, follow along with us and read. Or uh, if you don't yet have a copy, you can uh, click down in the show notes. You can get a link uh, to get your own copy of this book to follow along. Uh, people have been telling us that they find this discussion helpful to kind of walk through uh, what Pi's argument is. Yeah. Uh, so this time we're going to be looking at chapter four, uh, which is called Quality in Workmanship. This question of quality, this question of, you know, how do we describe different kinds of work? How do we think about good and bad work? How do we think about the different um, qualities that uh, we could attribute to work and why that's important? Because that really is the heart of this book. Uh, This chapter is actually the longest chapter in the whole book. And a lot of people think of the workmanship of risk and certainty distinction, and they think that's what the book is just, that's basically the point. Um, but that's just a framework. That's just a, a set of dis- of uh, descriptors for uh, trying to get at what the value of the workmanship of risk would even be. Mm-hmm. Why would we do such a thing? Um, so this chapter, he's talking now about quality and different kinds of qualities, and that is really where this discussion, where the heart of this book picks up. Yeah. So... Um- one of the things that Pi does a lot in this chapter is he's he's uh, presenting terms and he's unlocking them. Uh, later in the chapter, we'll get to it, but he, he gives this little story, um, this very old story with uh, Confucius in it and talking about the value of everyone agreeing to terms when you have a discussion. Because if you don't, if you're not on the same page with definitions, uh, there's nothing meaningful that can be, um, no meaningful information can be conveyed. Yeah, or so, at least understanding what someone means by that word when they use it. Right, exactly. So yeah. that's a, a, a fair amount of what he's doing in this chapter. So he starts off with talking about uh, four terms that are commonly applied to workmanship. He talks about good work. He talks about bad work. He talks about precise workmanship. And he talks about rough workmanship. Um, so one of the things he says is that it's, it's usual to... Cr- equate good with precise and bad with rough. But he says to do so is false. Yeah, it's it's totally misleading. It's totally mistaking. And so he's setting this up at the beginning saying, don't equate rough with bad mm-hmm. or precise with good. Right. That's not a good way of thinking about it. And this is, he's going to, in this chapter, kind of build that argument to make that case. And it's very convincing and obvious. Once you get through it, you go, oh yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, of course that's the case. So he actually says... Uh, if we're going to talk about good and bad work, if we're going to assess that, uh, we should judge it not by precision, the right. degree of precision, but by two different categories, two different uh, ideas. And he says these two ideas would be soundness mm-hmm. and comeliness. Yeah. 
which is a word I don't often it's a lovely use. British Britishism. Yeah. Um, so soundness is think about structure, right? You, yeah. The, if your if your chair is unsound, then you're in danger. Yeah. Right? So if you're constructing something, yeah. and it can't, it's not functional. It can't physically hold up to the forces it's mm-hmm. you know it's uh, trying to resist. Well, that's not a very yeah, sound object. So that would be bad workmanship. It's mm-hmm. not doing what it's supposed to be doing. Right. And so the comeliness is uh, in the area of aesthetics, right? How how attractive is it? How beautiful is it? How well proportioned is it? Um, how nicely is it finished that, that draws the eye, right? Mm-hmm. So there's something beneficial to it in in the aesthetic sense. Yep. And he also is connecting that with the designer's intention. Hmm. So throughout this chapter, he's going to be talking about the designer and the workman. He doesn't necessarily mean that's always two different people. Right. That yeah. might be the same person. He says person. it's often the same person. Yeah. So the designer is saying, this is what is going to be made. This is how I envision it and whatever. And the workman does it, right? So if it's the same person, I have an idea and yeah. then I make it. And so when you assess the, when I would then, if I'm making something, if I'm going to assess the comeliness of it, uh, what I'm assessing is how how well, aesthetically speaking, did this object uh, match or improve the the intention, the design. Right. So that's what he's coming at. If you're going to think about good work, you should be thinking: uh, Is this thing solid? Is it is it sound? Mm. And is it beautiful? Is it really a, a lovely thing to look at? You know, if I said this is what I want to make, did I do it? Right. <laughs> or is it a failure? Yeah, you can make a very ugly but very sound chair. Um, you know, it could be just a chunk of wood. Um, the idea of design, this, this I find is a really key part of this chapter. So yep. Pai says, all workmanship is approximation. Mm-hmm. So as Joshua, as you're explaining, you know, if let's say the designer and the worker are two different people. So the designer has this vision, which is put down on paper for the worker to execute, right? So that is an approximation of the ideal uh, design, right? right? Even references Plato's ideal forms. You yes. know, like what is flat? Yeah. What is straight? There is what no is flat. Square? There is no straight. You, yeah. you cannot do it. There is no such perfect square achievable, right? Yeah. So yeah, he's, you know, he kind of makes this reference to Plato. And of course you have to talk about the ideal forms when you're talking about workmanship um, and that we can't ever do that. So when we're saying something is square or something is flat, we're saying something is flat enough or square enough for the given context. What are you making? Is it square enough? Yeah. Yeah. He says, uh, because we can't do the perfect, but what we settle for is the approximation to mere regularity, which, you know, depending on the medium, it could be a very different thing. You know, if you're if you're building a kitchen table, flat means one thing. If you're, you know, building uh, some like a some seismic detector or something, you're trying to measure like gravity waves. Flat is something else entirely different and much more uh, precise, but still not perfect. Right. right, we're incapable of uh, the this perfection of form that you see in in like the Greek philosophers and stuff like that. So we go to an approximation to mere regularity. Yeah. So the, um, he then starts talking about the, the the notion of the design. What is the design? And the design is the ideal thing 
the ideal in the designer's mind saying, mm -hmm. this is what I picture, this is what I'd like to have. Yeah. And as he talks about, he said, not all of that can be put into words and drawn into a blueprint, but even within that, that there's this intention. He refers to a composer notating to play uh, con brio, you know, mm. to, to play vigorously. Yeah. That's like an audio texture. It's not really a texture, but it's not timbre, but you know, it's, it's this, it's when you play it, do it like this, yeah. give it this sort of flair or character. And so there's this intention built into design that you can't write it down on paper, but there's still uh, a cone brio intended. There's still some sort of, when you, when you execute it, make it look like this. You know, and so I think that's a really important thing because he's trying to bring out the qualities, uh, the textures, the qualities of the work itself, uh, and that he's is what he's trying to establish. Saying the design, the limitations of design, will stop at the paper, will stop yep. at the words, because there's something more that only the workman can actually pull off and do. Yeah, one of the points he makes is he says in a designer's drawing, all the joints fit perfectly, which you know gives you a. Uh, <laughs> It gives you a good look, a good practical look at w why it's different in execution than on paper or in a SketchUp drawing or wherever you get your your design, your your template, basically. Um, you know, as you are making the joinery that is perfect in the design, you find flaws in the material, right? And you have to adapt to that. You find f flaws. Probably we'll get at this later, but there are there are different places where. Uh, you diverge from this ideal design for specific reasons. Some are good reasons and creative reasons, and some are reasons of uh, your skill set can't go there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, well, I mean, he even talks about this on, on page 32 because he's talking about, you know, sort of provisionally, we can call some, some work perfect mm -hmm. when it corresponds to the intention, you know. So we know we're not expecting Plato's ideal, but. The intention. This is this is what a, an appropriate table looks like. Right. Yes, it's a it's perfect work. It's good. You've done what you're supposed to do, and he contrasts that with rough work, which there's a there's a visual disparity between the idea and the achievement. Mm. So there's you can see it. You right. say, I can see what it was trying to be, and it's not quite there. Um, so, like for example, a really an example I find helpful is a split rail fence. Yep. When you split, it's supposed to be a straight line. Yeah. But it's rough work because you can see it's not perfectly straight. So that's how he's he's um, the idea of straightness is there, and you can tell it that it, that's the intention. But it's obviously not going to be perfectly straight. Nature isn't. Right. And uh, I like the example of uh, he talks about a hewn timber. Right. It you don't ever look at that and go, oh, that would ideally be a perfect prism, you know, perfectly smooth. But that's kind of what it's getting at. And in timber framing, there's a way of doing joinery that's called square rule, where you're envisioning an ideal form within that rough timber, and you measure that ideal form to lay out your joinery. So you make the ends of the timber closer to the ideal form than the rough hewn, you know, middle sections of the timber. Uh, and so you're always envisioning that ideal, even if uh, you have allowable roughness on the surface. And that's that's perfectly in keeping with uh, the function of that structure. Like, it's fine to have axe marks all over it because uh, it does its job. Yeah, so why? Right. Why is it fine? So he has, <clears throat> he has three things that he says uh, that he can think of 
three reasons why we might be uh, content with rough workmanship. Um, and the three reasons might uh, would be these. The first is that the maker intends that to be the case. So, for example, in you know 2023, I like the look of rough hewn timbers. Mm-hmm. So that I would just say I intend it to be like that. I just right. want it like that. Yeah. So that would be one reason, which seems sort of obvious. But uh, then you talk to you know a timber framer, or you talk to a, you know another carpenter, and you say, "Oh, look at this beautiful timber frame," and they say. Wow, clearly uh, you didn't have the time to do it right. right. <laughs> okay, so the second reason could be time. You might legitimately not have enough time to get it more refined than yeah. that state. So I actually like it that way. But if I didn't like it that way, but I didn't have enough time, yeah. I might have to live with it. And the time I might be getting paid for my time. Mm-hmm. You know, I might be charging hourly, and my yeah. client says I'm only paying you for X amount of time. Yeah. So there you are. That's your constraint, a time constraint. But of course, lastly, and this is where he says uh, laymen, meaning people who are not uh, in the trade themselves, they always think it's actually the third reason. They often think it's mm. the third reason, and it's ineptitude. Right. It's that, wow, that guy didn't know what he was doing. Right. Yeah. Right? But that's not always the reason. And so when you see rough work, it's an error to say ineptitude. That right. That is a poor craftsman. That's bad craftsmanship. He's saying, no, 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 no. Sometimes there are economic constraints, time constraints, mm-hmm. and sometimes people wanted it to be that way. Mm-hmm. Like for in my instance of hewn timbers, I like it that way. Right. It's not because I couldn't, you know, over time and you know really laboriously make it perfectly square or you know functionally perfectly square. No, it's I actually like it that way. So that's where he's setting up, saying, don't mistake the idea when you see some rough work that doesn't correspond to the ideal, don't just assume ineptitude because that is not the case. Right. Yeah, he says many of Rembrandt's drawings are rough, but not, one may safely say, because of ineptitude. Right. Um, You know, we have this building here right next door to us that was, uh, it's our blacksmith shop here, and it was hewn and raised by a group of carpenters in uh, eight days. And their ability with the axe, their ability to lay out lines and hew is amazing. I mean, it was like magic to watch how quickly they could do this work. But all the timbers are rough. They're rough hewn. They have axe marks still on them. And someone might look at that and say, well, you know, where's the precision here, right? This timber is rough and there's a chunk here and there's a little bit of bark there or whatever remaining. Um, But that is perfectly in keeping with the appropriate roughness mm-hmm. of that building. That's where rough does not mean poor craftsmanship right. in any way. Exactly. And so he actually, um, right here he references, uh, on page 32, he's talking about um, the the sketch. He's talking about Rembrandt's drawings that are rough, these sketches. So there's this also this, um, this building accumulation process so you can if you're going to paint a portrait say Mm -hmm. you would start with a sketch you'd Mm -hmm. sketch it out and then you'd fill it out and refine that and so he he's making this this correlation between um other sorts of craft work that um some work some rough work is the is functionally like a sketch it's just getting it roughed out it's getting you close and then you can refine that uh as to whatever is appropriate and then there's a stopping point Mm -hmm. there's a there's a point when you say uh, ma'am, your portrait is done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to fuss over the, <laughs> the tiny details any longer. 
Um, interestingly, he also references, he talks about um, Japan, the certain kind of rough workmanship that ha- has a great following and has become highly sophisticated. So you see yeah. that in like the, uh, the, the wabi-sabi kind of thing right. where um, aesthetic, what you'd say are blemishes, they are accentuated, you know, mm-hmm. like cracks in a bowl are filled with gold. And so it brings out the flaws as a, a deeper kind of beauty. Like that that kind of roughness that you look at and say, that's flawed, throw it away. Um, it's actually really revered and really valued to, to treasure that kind of flaw. Mm-hmm. It kind of brings out, uh, you know, kind of a human element to it because all humans are flawed as well. Um, but there's, there's beauty in that as well. Yeah. So he talks about, um, <clears throat> he uses this example, uh, he, he, helpfully, this book. You know, it sounds, a lot of times it's this, it's this craft theory stuff, but he's got tons of illustrations and examples, mm. and he's um, not just, you know, verbal illustrations where he's describing differences, but he has pictures here, and he's saying, see this thing made, and then here's how it would be in this case. So he starts talking about this, uh, a glass frame, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a circular frame. If you've seen those before, it's it's perfectly circular. It's presumably turned. A lot of them are turned, but they're in pieces. So there's one that's in pieces and and not quite, you know, let's say four pieces, uh, four quarter circles put together and the joints aren't quite lined up. And you understand that it's supposed to be perfectly round, but you can see the disparity. You can see the, the shoulders don't quite match up and you have this jarring thing. And so you, then you begin to uh, move into different ways of working. And you say, maybe I can bend this into a circle. Maybe mm-hmm. I can make this, this line more continuous. So this sort of, um, this the workman is always playing with the ideal saying, here's what the ideal is. Here's what we're shooting for. And what are the, the ways I can work that can get me closer to that? Yeah. Cause the, the workman as Pi says is essentially an interpreter. Right. So if you think of someone doing an interpretation or like a translation, I think, I think a translator and you can have a good translator who, you know, those are the kind of people that get their jobs at the UN or whatever. And when someone is speaking, they're actively giving as accurate a translation as possible. Uh, it makes a big difference if you mess that translation up, right? It, yeah. it has political ramifications if you use the wrong word. Uh, the workman is an interpreter. He's taking the design and he's interpreting it into physical reality. And you can do that well or poorly. Right. And so he... Uh, then talks about so you have this uh, how how common it is how uh, normal it is to see refined precise work uh, right next to rough work mm. and so he says um, they can act as a foil to each other and set each other off they can contrast and kind of play off each other and so when you see uh, when you see rough work in an inappropriate representation it looks like an intrusion he says. Uh-huh. Um, and that is just evidence of carelessness and the job is spoiled. So he's saying, when you understand how a thing is supposed to be and then you see it rough, it feels like, oh, wow, what mm-hmm. is that? That's not supposed to be like that. And it's interesting to me because that is so much about, you know, we've talked so much uh, on this podcast and in our publications about period workmanship and, and furniture um, in, in all sorts of wooden things. But period workmanship, pre-industrial workmanship is in the secondary hidden surfaces underneath behind mm-hmm. it is rough and usually uh, historically that was for the, this economic this time constraint 
And you can see it's not an aptitude because on the surfaces, right. it's nice and tidy. But there was a time constraint, so the back was left. Um, and so this this roughness left on the back is something that if it was rough on the front and smooth on the back, right. of course, that would be jarring. We'd say, what in the world is going on here? Yeah. Or uh, if it was rough everywhere, we'd say, hmm, either there really was not much time yeah. to make that This was a five-minute table. Chest, yeah. Or... Uh, you know, this person really didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. Uh, so that those may be the reasons. Um, and then today, I'm sure, you know, people really like making rough looking yeah. stuff. You, you go make it and, out of a palette. Yeah, you make it out of a palette and it looks rough and you just put epoxy on it with the <laughs> rough, you know, palette and you say, I love this roughness. Now that's fine. If that's the intention, you know, okay, you've, su- you've succeeded. It's rough everywhere, yeah. right? But um what he's talking about is you have to understand what is intended here. When you look at a piece of period furniture, you can't show up with, and I'm adding this, but you can't show up with industrial assumptions and right. say, this is what's proper workmanship. Mm-hmm. And then show up to pre-industrial furniture and say, clearly they were incompetent. Right. And eh, I, that's not how it works. Yeah. I think that's a lot of what he's getting at in this chapter when he begins saying, you know, good and precise do not necessarily go together because if you look at a rack full of flat pack furniture, all the parts are pretty precisely identical. Yeah. But that soundness is a question. Right, exactly. And that that <laughs> means like we've all been influenced by the industrial mindset where we look at things and everything is identical. And so you say, well, that's precise. That must be good. And that I think that mindset really took over when a lot of wood shops were moving from from this uh, handwork or workmanship of risk into more certain and especially powered applications, a lot of um, hobby woodworkers were drawn into that sense that, oh, precision is where it's at. So I need these fence tools. I need these tools that can be adjusted to the fraction of an inch uh, to get this precision because everyone sees that as quality now. And I think that's kind of the industrial mindset setting in on us and changing the way we view uh, quality. Yeah. And so I think Pais is trying to say, okay, let's just change the categories. Let's not think about good and bad. Yeah. I mean, or let's use that very specifically, but if we're going to, let's not conflate that with uh, rough and precise. Mm -hmm. So he says, all right, let's think about it this way. Let's think of it in terms of regulation. Mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty neutral word. Yeah. How regulated is the work? How controlled is it? So he has this sort of continuum he lays out between highly regulated, mm-hmm. very, 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 very precise, highly regulated to, if you're thinking in terms of a continuum, then he is like regulated. And then he says, moderately free mm-hmm. and then free, right? So yep. it's a continuum from <clears throat> highly regulated to free workmanship where there is, um, where he says, where precise repetition is on the whole avoided, we'll call it free, yeah. right? So it's, it's on the looser end of, of the tolerances. And so I think this is a much more helpful way to think about it. Of course, this is building off of his risk and certainty continuum. Yeah. It's He's kind of just, I take it like he's just layering on another way to get at this and to describe it between regulation, how controlled is it, and how free is it. Yeah. Yeah, if you think of free in terms of he, he uses wood carving and calligraphy, I think those are yeah. good examples. Uh, if you've ever watched a really skilled calligrapher, uh, it's 
amazing and there are differences between the letters often it's it's imposed different you know it's it's creative difference there are new uh, accents or ways that the letter flows where they look similar but different and it's not a difference in precision because of a lack of skill but it's for aesthetics Mm -hmm. it actually adds variety and diversity and, and beauty um that like a printer or software plugging out numbers cannot equal in any way so then he uh, goes to talk about, okay, if we talked about, you know, before, let's see, what was this? It was the last page. Uh, he was talking about three reasons that um, that something would be rough. Mm-hmm. And now in this part, he's talking about there are three ways that regulation is achieved. Mm-hmm. So any person walking up to a workbench, right? You have a task, you have a design in mind, you have a yep. thing you're trying to do and you want it to be, regulated to a certain degree let's say it's highly regulated or you know uh, just this nicely regulated work you want to get there right so there are three ways you can do that he says the first is dexterity yeah and that means the skill in your hand you can guide that tool you're able to do it Right? That seems obvious. Yeah, he talks about a shipwright with an ads, right? How by eye that shipwright could fare a surface skillfully, you mm-hmm. know, by with, with just the dexterity of his hands. The second one then is uh, gradualness. Mm-hmm. And this is, um, this is a very common thing when you're starting out. So you leave the line yeah. and then you slowly yeah. work, work your, your way, way up to it. it. Because you can... You can say, I'm not really confident with my sawing, so I'm going to leave the line and actually a little more, and then I'm going to slowly pare down to that line, or I'm going to plane down to the line, because I can control that tool a little bit, and I'm just going to go take thin shavings and get closer and yep. closer and closer. So, so you're that taking the f- half a wisp and you know just the lightest little thing, and suddenly you're lying, you're splitting your line. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a way to get there, and you know, Picture again the shipwright with his ads. He might go in there and just like take a full on swing and sink his ads deep into a plank split and split the pencil line. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, <laughs> cause a lot of destruction too, right? Yeah. If he if he tries to take too much at once, so he doesn't. He takes swings and removes chips, and he just mm-hmm. knows through muscle memory how much can be taken before he digs in and rips out. Yeah, and that is the whole art of craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, when you're you're always trying to we often talk about efficient handwork. And so what in using this this terminology here, we're trying to get people away from gradualness. Mm-hmm. Gradualness is where you start. Yep. You take it really slow, leave the line, you know, work your way up to it. But we're trying to say, okay, Take bigger bites. Yeah. Gain that skill. Gain that dexterity so that you don't have to go so slow yeah. and take a million shavings to get down to the line. Get that skill. Be really confident. Make that big pass and boom, you're yeah, right on you it. Use the, the coarsest tool possible for as long as possible. Yeah. And that that is where the speed comes in. That's how uh, people made furniture so fast in the past. They were able to use those rough tools to remove a lot of wood almost down to a finished surface. And then they just use their, the smoothing plane and stuff to get that right. finished surface. But all up before that was uh, dexterity with coarse tools, removing mm-hmm. lots of material. So then he says there's, there's one more way that you can have regulated work. There's mm-hmm. a, a third final way to get 
to to achieve what you're setting out to achieve uh, in the task, and that is what he calls shape determining mm-hmm. systems. Jigs. Jigs. Yeah. M- forms, molds, gauges. Uh, he's talking about how these that these are. Uh, self-jigging. He says even uh, many tools are self-jigging. He talks about mm-hmm. the ads and how it rides. You know, so you're using uh, a, a shape-determining system. And this is a phrase that's come from his his first book, The Nature of Aesthetics and Desi- of Design. Um, that here he's distinguishing between skilled systems and shape-determining systems. That book was written a few years uh, before this one, and. When you read that and then you compare that to this book, it's interesting because it's almost like actually later on in the chapter, he says, skill is not a word used in this book. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting because in the other book, he talks, he describes a skilled system as having judgment, dexterity, and yeah. care. So, the, so yeah. So he, it's like he's refining mm-hmm. his ideas about this. Um, but I think it is helpful to think of it in terms of skill. He ends up not liking that word, mm-hmm. but I think that is. Uh, a great description of what skill is, although he wants to restrict skill to pure mechanical dexterity. Mm-hmm. Can you control your hand? Um, but I think that uh, skill is a you know includes more than just mechanical dexterity. Yeah, I would say, you know reading Pi, I would say that I always think of skill in terms of what he calls the workmanship of risk. Like I just think that's skill. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want, if you like that word and, and think of it in that way, you can just kind of go in and paste it over every time he says workmanship of risk, you can just say skill. Yeah. And I think it can work. Um, <clears throat> so he goes through a bit of a, an interesting mental exercise here, different ways to cut a piece of paper straight, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, so basically just to illustrate what he means by jigged, what he means by dexterity, what he means by, um, gradualness. You know, he says like you can cut a little outside the line, then trim it back a little bit, and till till you get to your line. Or you can use like a, a a paper cutter, which you just lay it in, take a cut. It's jigged, it's predictable, it gets you there. Um, mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with skill. Yeah, and he talks basically. He actually has it's like six different steps yep. showing degrees of of uh, jigging, I guess you would say. Um, and like the third one is using scissors mm-hmm. and that's partially jigged because once it starts cutting, it kind of runs in a straight line throughout the, the slice. Um, or you can take a knife along a ruler, which is going to be even more uh, jigged because now you have a fence you're riding along. So, you know, he's showing that you have um, this um, th- this trajectory of continually building it to be uh, your, your work situation to be more and more refined, which is determining the outcome is it skills that are determining it or is there some sort of external control is there a shape determining system mm. i.e a fence mm-hmm. or the tool that like the scissors that are guiding themselves or um you know you have um a paper cutter as you mentioned mike this shape determining system is is the outcome dependent on that yeah so he goes back and talks again about free workmanship um free as in essentially unjigged, uh, he says, in free workmanship, the flat surface is not quite flat, but when seen from close by, shows a faint pattern of tool marks, which is what we love around here. <laughs> you know, that's what we look for because those tool marks tell you about process. And so we we really value the fact that um, 
period makers were not seeking for absolute perfect flatness and erasure of all all tool marks and things like that. Mostly because of a time constraint. Yeah, exactly. So I'm glad for that. Um, but he says that um, Pi actually ascribes a different value to that as well. He says the effect of such approximations, which is to say not a perfectly flat surface, but you can see some tool marks, he says, is to contribute very much to the aesthetic quality in workmanship, which I shall call diversity, which is discussed in a later chapter. But um, he's saying that that actually adds to the beauty. The lack of or lesser degree of absolute perfection to the form actually makes the object more beautiful. Gives it a, a lively character. Yeah. Uh, he has in the he has a series of plates that he has these different examples, and he has a um, a carving of a leaf. And he talks about how it has, it's like the nature of a sketch. It has a liveliness to it mm -hmm. that is just, it just draws you in. So he talks about these uh, slight divagations, these slight irregularities in the surface. And he, as a designer, he's a designer, remember, he's saying, there's something to that that really contributes to the design. Mm -hmm. The texture of that really gives it a life. And I care about that. So that's what he's, this is where you're starting to see, oh, okay, this is why he cares about this workmanship of risk and making all these distinctions because he's trying to get at how do I get this liveliness and this beauty and this life to things I'm designing and making? And he saw, I I'm limited as I'm designing furniture. Remember, he was an industrial furniture designer and he's handing his designs over to this factory and he's saying, no, nah, there's just something that can't quite... There's got to be another form of workmanship that can actually get the thing I'm picturing, my intention and my design. Right. So he says free workmanship is now rare and becoming rarer, um, especially in like an industrial or mass production setting. Uh, he says it's um, the workmanship of certainty is simply in its nature incapable of freedom. Mm -hmm. So right. uh, that's would, the creative freedom for the maker, right? Well, well uh, this free workmanship. So if you had workmanship of certainty that uh, is free work, mm -hmm. then that's horrible workmanship right. of certainty. That machine is terrible. Get rid of it. <laughs> yeah. The whole so, point yeah. is that it's regulated and yeah. controlled and, and it's predetermined. That's called somebody didn't loosen down or tighten down the bolts or something <laughs> and it's just going crazy and cutting everything. That's, that's free work in a, a machine setting. Yeah. But he says, in the old days, free workmanship was the way of turning out cheap goods in quantity. But now even the smartest workman using it could not compete with the workmanship of certainty. Um, so then he talks about there are a few areas where um, the workmanship of risk is still utilized, like basket making and things like that. Um, and blacksmithing. Yeah. There isn't too much that's highly regulated. I mean, of course, you can um, you can use forms and different things like that. But um, but blacksmithing is highly focused on workmanship of risk. It really is about hand skill, dexterity, control to get what you're at. Yeah, the, he also talks about um, spoon carving. He talks about this Welsh turner. Uh, he said, as a boy, he, he carved wooden spoons to be sold at fairs at, he thinks, two pence a piece. He said that at that price, there was just time when the spoon was finished to look once at the inside, once at the outside, and then throw it over your shoulder on the heap and start another, <laughs> which is... Which is great. You can imagine those spoons probably had a great uh, 
uh, diversity a of character. Yeah, exactly. You take a look, <laughs> flip it over, you know, take a cut. But that's not to say they, they don't have great skill in them. Like, mm -hmm. especially if you're making lots of spoons, I'm sure you're extremely skilled. And part mm -hmm. of the way that skill plays out is in how fast you can make them. But also you can see the dexterity of, of the knife work in those very quickly made spoons when you look at them and just compare them. Like some, Joshua, you've talked about um, some spoons that you have that, uh, like some of the most comfortable spoons also kind of look rough. Yep. They look like they were made very quickly, but they're amazing because mm -hmm. they are exactly what a spoon should be yep. in, um, in all these features and the shape and the way you hold it and it just works perfectly. Yeah. There are some very highly refined spoons and I'll say, a lot of people, you know, use sandpaper as, mm -hmm. as is said in the spoon carving community, sandpaper is just covering up a lack of skill. <laughs> that's what they say. I'm just quoting people. <laughs> um, but they're very highly refined in that way. The surface is, is like smooth sure. as baby skin, but they lack some of the, um, aesthetic or, um, the, uh, the way it feels in your hand or when you're eating something in your yeah. mouth, they're just missing that because sure. they they lack that degree of skill, though they look perfect and perfectly smooth. Yeah, so one thing I think here he says that at the bottom of 36, that is, I just, we've said this a few different times, but I wanna emphasize it here is, I'll, I'll read it first. He says, there is no substitute for the aesthetic quality of this workmanship mm -hmm. of risk yeah. and the world will be poorer without it. Mm -hmm. And so this is really interesting because actually he says it's impossible not to regret that it is declining. And so what this is helpful to underline what he's saying here is there's no substitute for the aesthetic quality. That's what he cares about. Mm -hmm. And this is why he takes issue with Ruskin because Rus Ruskin is actually talking about sort of a, is more of a political question about mm -hmm. slavery and these yeah. kinds of things. Um, and Pai is saying, well, you're talking about sort of valorizing um, a, a process of working, mm -hmm. but Pi just doesn't really care about that in this book. He's actually focused more on what are the tactile aesthetic qualities that can be obtained through different means. Yeah, That's pretty much the, the extent of his focus in this book. And so he says, well, if you want this sort of these slight divagations and this liveliness, then you're going to go down this path of free work and mm -hmm. guided by hand because that's how you get that. Um, so I do think it's actually quite interesting because that's Pi's focus is pretty pretty narrow on that point, yeah. and that's why he that's kind of where he's going with this book is he says there's something about that that we want to hold on to that we need in this world something that has some life to it it's not just sterile flat machine made right um, but for him it's not about glorifying the process he just seems to not really care. Mm -hmm. Or put he, give any romantic attention to the the um, the process? Oh wow, the craftsman, you know, foot powered lathe or something. He really doesn't seem to care about that, which is interesting because I've been you know I've been building off of Pi in my own interest in in mortise and tendon because I do care about the process right. um, and the liveliness that he's seeing. I would say testifies to something. Yeah, yeah. it's not just. I had this really interesting discussion with someone who has been studying, is it sort of a student of Pi's reading and thinking about it and trying to apply this kind of thing into um, uh, 3D printing and, and manufacturing to kind of uh, take this design insight and put it, basically put 
the the surfaces that can be that are the result of workmanship of risk into workmanship of certainty mm-hmm. through three D printing or other sorts of things. Um, but it's interesting to me because we talked about this earlier. The the reason I think the reason we value those marks is not because they just kind of look nice and they break right. up the light. Right. No, they actually testify to a yeah, person made to the this. process. Yeah. There's there's an intentionality between each shallow track of the smoothing plane. It's not applied as an aesthetic, but it has right. aesthetic value. Uh, right. In in the whole. So the the worker isn't there going. I'll put a little plane track here. That'll look nice. No, they're actually smoothing the surface right and that is why that's valuable and then it it's also beautiful in a way that um machines might be able to try and replicate the texture but they can't replicate that intentionality right um so pi here then gets into i find the 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 images in this book are very helpful uh a series of plates right so he has a, a cabinet an 1868 very ornate cabinet and then he has a beer can <laughs> the top of a beer can, um, which is, you know, great as well. But what he's doing is he's saying, look at this. This one here, this one of these, if you look at it like one is a counterpoint of the other, one of these is like perfect and smooth and ideal. And it's like the the ultimate expression of the idealized form of this thing. And that is, of course, the beer can. Mm-hmm. It's It's perfect. Uh, someone hundreds of years ago would have looked at a beer can and gone, oh, this is, look at this. It's like an object of worship. A lot of people do think of beer cans as objects of worship. (laughs) (laughs) For different reasons than the aesthetic value of the beer can. Um, But yeah, so so that is one set of plates. He has a picture of an Argus 400 uh, computer. So this was a state of the art back in 1968. Uh, And he's talking about how next to that is this carving that Joshua was talking about of the olive branch. Mm, And he's comparing and contrasting and looking at the elements in each object, each um, device or object or carving that uh, has elements of risk and elements of certainty in in the making of it. He even pulls out in this Argus computer, you can see some wiring that was hand soldered and he says, there's risk there. Look at that. That's... That's workmanship of risk in this otherwise very precise and very regular uh, object. And then he gets into um, uh, some rock sitting on the shore. And then he has a, a chopping block and a side axe. And he's talking about, you know, textures and things like that. He has the lid of an earthenware crock and one of those uh, ceramic insulators that you used to see on the top of power poles. In fact, we still have on our power pole out front, which is ancient and should be taken down and replaced at some point, but it's full of woodpecker holes and stuff. But it has these old ceramic insulators, right? Which they, were- They did change the, they ran the wires on a different yeah, pole. But, but it's gonna come down one day yeah. soon. <laughs> um, but yeah, those old ceramic insulators, which were perfect, right? They're made in an, a mechanized process and they're, they don't have handprints in it, we'll say, like mm-hmm. the old earthenware crocs. Uh, so Pi, he talks about the values of the textures and the, the differences um, in the thought process, the ideal form, and then the actual um, product that's made. 
and I, I just find it very um, thought-provoking, very useful to go through those. Yeah, so, I mean, if this discussion is helpful, then, you know, I would definitely recommend getting the book so you can look at the pictures and go, oh, okay, yeah, I can see how that corresponds to this, and he's highlighting different aspects of each piece. Um, and the, the pictures really are quite helpful. Yeah. <clears throat> so after the series of plates, Pi then um, kind of takes us, does a little sidebar thing. He's talking about, uh, like we mentioned earlier, definitions and terminology are crucially important. He says a large part of the fruitfulness of scientific thought has come from one simple fact. It is that hitherto every scientific term has had an exact definition, verbal or mathematical, universally accepted. So again, if you're talking about something, you're trying to lay a framework. If you're discussing with someone else that framework and your terms aren't equivalent or someone misunderstands one of your terms, you're not going to get it. You're not going to make any headway in, in unpacking this, this deep concept that you're trying to communicate. So uh, he gives us this fun little story um, about Sulu and Confucius and talking about you have to be on the same page with the words you're using. Yeah. Um, again, um, it's valuable to think about. So this is, this is about halfway through this chapter. Mm-hmm. I mean, this chapter, this is the longest chapter in the book, and um, kind of halfway through, he starts bringing ideas back and, and uh, bringing in, kind of making the same point again, drawing in uh, similar ideas, and he's kind of just emphasizing uh, the point. Uh, but he does set up three different uh, words that I think are helpful, and it, I actually realized were formative for me, but it was kind of latent. It was like, they're like seeds planted, and mm-hmm. they, they actually blossomed later. Um, he, talk, he distinguishes between technique, technology, and workmanship. And uh, technique, he says, is know-how. Mm-hmm. Knowing how to do something, right? So I, I get it. I know how to plane a board. I know how to build a table, right? That's technique. Technology is the scientific study and extension of technique. Mm-hmm. So systematizing it, saying this is how tables are made, and we've studied these tables, and this is the most efficient way, and you're, you're kind of making it a scientific process, not just a craft process. And then he says workmanship, which is the application of technique, saying, yeah. I know how to do that, and yeah. workmanship is then doing do it. it. Yeah. And so you're applying that knowledge by the exercise of care, judgment, and dexterity. So um, again, that's kind of what if if Pi were to use the word skill, I think that's how he would make his definition: the exercise of care, judgment, and dexterity. That is workmanship, right? Um, so he he builds on this concept a little. He talks about good workmanship. Good workmanship is that which carries out or improves on the design, whether the design was made by the workman or another. And bad workmanship fails to do so and thwarts the designer's intention in respect either to soundliness or comeliness. So he's coming back to those concepts. So that's good and bad workmanship. So um, on 51, 52, 53, he's, he's kind of walking through similar territory. He's talking about, um, he again brings up uh, the, the, he's clarifying a workmanship of risk and certainty. He's talking about regulated workmanship. So he ends up at this point just starts kind of repeating himself, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's talking about how this idea of these two kinds of these two poles of working have always existed in history. He says historical development 
is has always been to increase the workman's power to regulate. So as tools were developed over time, there's always this aim, particularly, mostly historically because of uh, time constraints, Mm -hmm. budgetary constraints, or I have to survive and I have a farm to keep going, so I have time constraints that way. Because of that, um, then I'm going to try to, you know, make my outcome more predictable and make it less laborious. And so the historical development of tool, uh, you know, refinement is toward regulation, more and more regulation to make the work expedited. Yeah, so he um, he proposes a term uh, he's talking about here in the workmanship of certainty and risk. Uh, he says he's proposing a term which is workman. That's the term he proposes for man, woman, or group of people who interpret and execute a design by the workmanship of risk using judgment, care, and dexterity. Uh, He talks about, it's kind of funny, he says, one can no longer use the word craftsman, it's getting fly-blown. I hadn't heard that word before, but I can kind of picture what it means. He says, too many cranks and too many people trying to grab higher wages have called themselves by it. And you can see like here, this is the early stages of what we call craft washing today, where everything is craft and like that, that milkshake is handcrafted, all this stuff. Um, so he's seeing that already, the writings on the wall for that um, back in 1968, that the word craftsman is being applied where it shouldn't be. And so it, it no longer has meaning yeah. uh, that's valuable. I, I do think this is such an interesting uh, thing. He really says, oh, craftsmanship gets, you know, is, is all screwed up. People think of it in weird ways. And so I'm going to propose the word workman. Right. That right. will fix it. Yeah. And so he says, like, to call a man a good workman should imply the highest respect. Mm-hmm. You know. <clears throat> so I'm just thinking, wouldn't you? Couldn't you just have the same problem with that word? Yeah. I mean, I mean, he he talks about the problem with that word too. He says the word workman tends to be used as thought the same thing as laborer. And he says, I have respect for many laborers, but that's not what I mean. So again, you know, terms are are important to um, to define, but he has the potential of getting into trouble with that term as well. So, sure. um, you know, we see how uh, language has swung back and forth and changed since 1968. And we can see maybe some of the, the weaknesses in the terms he used or maybe some of the strengths in the terms he used. But it is, uh, it is interesting here that we are, um, wow, 60 years later, roughly, looking at his, his terminology and his thought process and a lot of it, still holds up very well and is clearly perfectly relevant today, Uh, especially the comment about uh, craftsmen, too many cranks, too many people (laughs) trying to grab higher wages or calling themselves by it. Yeah. So he he talks about, you know, these, this risk uncertainty, this has existed throughout history uh, in all sorts of trades and machines. He talks about Machines. It's not as though the machine is uh, exempt from any sort of skill or judgment, dexterity, and care applied. But the difference is that the machines, which are you know embodying this workmanship of certainty, they are, he says, simply the stored embodiment of the care, judgment, mm. and dexterity exercised by the workman at an earlier time. So jig making is a craft mm-hmm. is a, is one way to say it so you exercise all this the skill and these abilities to create something that 
once you get that thing running, it's always going to cut it straight. It's right. always going to cut it exactly to the length you need. You, you, you come up with, you use all of your ingenuity and skill to make something really successful that can you know be uh, consistent. And so machines are not... Uh, are, shouldn't be taken completely away from s the exercise of skill. Right. But the difference is that it's stored up skill. So if you buy a machine mm -hmm. and someone says, this is how you run this thing. I know you've never touched this before, but touched wood before, but you know, here's how you use the machine. Just feed it in here, watch your fingers here and press this button. Obviously the person who's setting the board there is not exercising the skill and setting the board there. Right. But the people who came up with the machine it's stored up skill that this person has purchased. So that's the distinction. It's not that jigs are or machines have no skill. It's that it's all stored up. Yeah. When you, you know, they talk about you know, the, the time and using a jig is all in the setup. Like you do a lot of, you could say the workmanship of risk in setting up a jig. There's a lot of fussing. There's a lot of fiddling. You probably ruin a number of boards as you're trying it to get it just right. Right. So you fine tune, you fuss, you adjust, and then when it's time, when it's set, then you have predictable results. But the if it's a good sound right. jig, right? Exactly. If it's made out of like junky scrap wood that's kind of wobbling as you're yeah. using it, that's not. So that's good. not really yeah. a successful uh, uh, workmanship of certainty situation. Yep. So um, <clears throat> yeah, it's very interesting to think about the fact that uh, all these machines and machine tools were built on, as he says, the care, judgment, and dexterity exercised by the workmen at an earlier time. Um, he gives an example in the Science Museum of London. There are um, the first lead screws like ever made, which were chased for the first screw cutting lathe in one of the first planers whose bed Roberts chiseled and filed flat. He said, how many generations of screws and plane surfaces can those machines have bred? So. Mm. This was a very uh, fine, detailed uh, workmanship of risk that made these things from which generations of precise machine tools, very jigged tools, uh, were born from, right? Um, so that all does originate in the workmanship of risk. So he, uh, he kind of is bringing this chapter to a close then. He's kind of bringing things around and he's talking about, I think this is helpful. He says, workmanship... It, workmanship is the exercise of care mm -hmm. plus judgment plus dex, dexterity. So again, what he's trying to highlight is craftsmanship is defined as workmanship of risk. Mm -hmm. Workmanship is the same thing. It's uh, care, judgment, and dexterity. Yeah. So what that means is um, you can, and this is the history of industrialism as well, that uh, industrialism first started with taking uh, apprentice-trained um, journeymen and saying, hey, you know what? You just do this one task, and you over there, you do that task, mm -hmm. and it was about division of labor, right? That's the first step in industrial industrialized mentality. So you had these manufacturers set up so that everybody's got one task they're doing, right? Yeah. Or a few tasks. And then you realize, well, if they're only doing that one thing, 
then I could just get someone who didn't go through seven years of apprentice right. training. Yeah. Let's just teach this kid over here. How to do Here, that. you cut yeah. that. The one right? thing. Oh, you got the one thing. So now you can get uh, less expensive labor. And then once you realize that, okay, actually people are quite expensive. They are, yeah. Let's work on this machinery so that this machine can just cut that line and mm-hmm. then pass it to the next stage, the next step. Um, this is what is really starting to... Um, open this idea, this understanding of what workman a workman is. A workman is someone who embodies skill, mm-hmm. someone who is exercising skill. And of course, that individual person can feed something into a machine. Mm-hmm. But he's. But what Pi is trying to say is, but that holding the board up to the fence isn't the epitome of craftsmanship. That's right. holding a board. So that's that's the distinction, and that I think is what gets. Um, hackles up with a lot of people as they're saying, "Oh, you're saying that because I use a machine, I don't have. I'm an unskilled person." Right. No, no, no. You're missing it. It's saying the use of a highly regulated jig does not demand the same amount of skill as guiding a tool by eye and right. by by hand. Yeah, and that is. I mean, that's kind of the crux of that whole argument. Um, it's. It's hard to wiggle around that when you put it in those kind of terms because that's clearly what Pi is saying. Um, he goes back again to say that the workman is essentially an interpreter. So he's kind of come full circle. Now we're coming back to seeing, we, he's defined all these terms, but we're seeing again why he says that. You know, like you have this design. The workman has all these different things to work through, like these these different ways to um, to regulate the operation. He has these different um, methods, these uh, basically th- these uh, achievement, the ways that uh, his achievement may differ from uh, the ideal, right? And so, coming full circle back to how he's interpreting, so much of the the quality or the beauty of the interpretation is tied up in all these things that Pi has been arguing. Uh, over the previous few, few pages. So um, he says, like, if the designer so-called has no interest in the appearance of the job, his thoughts will be so crude that uh, this may be true in fairly simple cases, basically that um, the thoughts of one man, this is a quote of Ruskin, actually, the thoughts of one man can be carried out by the labor of others because a design is determinable by line and rule. So... Um, it's interesting to think about that. In ter- here he is quoting Ruskin. Later in the book, he he raises some issue with Ruskin and uh, what Ruskin was pursuing in in his argument. Although we see a lot of overlap uh, between Ruskin and Pi, how they they seem to agree in many ways. Yeah, but so he um, he talks about this, this idea of interpretation. I think it's helpful because again, uh, just to reiterate as we're wrapping up here that. Uh, his particular interest in this whole discussion is about getting a certain aesthetic quality. That's what he wants in his designs. And so he says, uh, interpreters are always necessary because instructions are always incomplete. Right. Right? So the the designer can say, I have this picture in my head, how I want it to be, and I want it to have it like this and whatever, but interpreters are always necessary, i.e. workmen are always necessary because that last, that that texture, what you're going to see, what your hand is going to touch, what your eye is going to see from a foot away, no designer can just tell you what it's going to be like. Mm-hmm. That is left up to the workman. Yeah, and that is what uh, Pi is really holding on to, saying, 
everything, all workmanship is approximation, it's interpretation. And so we need to uh, hold that up. And if we lose that and we just let everything be machine produced, we're going to be missing a huge part of um, the beauty and liveliness of the, the built environment. Yeah, he, he uses these examples. He says there are judges to determine what the act means after parliament has done its best to make its intentions clear. And we see that in this country, you know, through constitutional law and things like that. Um, basically, going through like a law that's passed and um, clarifying the intentions of it and like in very specific cases, getting down to the nitty gritty to interpret that. Right. And so for a conductor or a pianist to determine what Bach means after he's done his best by means of a score, we, yeah. we can't hear Bach's music today. We can see what he wrote, but it's up to skilled musician, musicians to interpret that for us so we can hear through the paper Bach's design played out as a, a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. And Pi ends the chapter, actually, uh, strangely enough, on music. You know, yeah. I mean, there's a strong correlation through this whole book. He's always uh, taking, you know, craftsmanship and music and using this as a strong uh, illustration, which is very helpful, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, he says, although workmanship is interpretation, I do not suggest that anything a workman gives us can be as moving as what the performer of music does. So, woodworkers, we can only go so far in beauty. In Pai's eyes, music will always transcend. Uh, any wooden object. Um, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. He says, no design lives in the same world as music, and the performance of music allows more subtle and deep expression than any workmanship can possibly attain to. Do you, do you buy that? I don't know. I mean, I I hear what he's saying about the transcendence of music. Mm -hmm. um, I think beauty varies. It differs in form, right? Mm -hmm. But... I think he'd have to write a book to qualify yeah, that. Yeah, I would want, I mean, if he were here, if I was in that lecture, I'd say, excuse me, uh, Professor Pai, can you justify that statement? Like, yeah. wh why would you say that only music can get us to a certain, uh, can only touch us so uh, at this depth of level in our right. being and, you know, craftsmanship or even, I don't know if you would say the same about artistic works, I would assume. Right. I would it can't so. touch us in the same depths of our being. I think about somebody who's, um, you know, an art critic mm -hmm. and maybe they're not really into music. I would imagine this statement would not hold up for them, that they right. would be just, you know, blown over by the, the, the skill. And I guess I'm, I'm saying that as a furniture maker, I really enjoy music. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that the more attentive you are, as he was, of course, the more attentive you are to craftsmanship, it is moving to say, wow, that is just gorgeous. That really uh, captures. And I think it's an interesting, when you're thinking about a, a handmade bowl and a handmade spoon or something, there's a level of intimacy when I'm eating yogurt with that. Yeah. that you know, I, I have that in my mouth, right. you know, and there's a level of... Uh, satisfaction that I have saying, I know the guy who made this for me, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm thinking about all that. And music, of course, is moving, but I don't know if I buy saying only music can, yeah. you know, can go that far. But, you know, craftsmanship is just nice. Yeah. Yeah, he should. I mean, maybe that's one of his unwritten later works. Maybe there's a pile of notes somewhere that's waiting yeah. to be published. On, we'll have to figure that out. On beauty and aesthetics. Um, 
but yeah, this was a meaty chapter. Yeah. I, I mean, I realize how uh, this is like drinking from the fire hose. We were trying to get through this whole chapter. Uh, I think we got close to an hour, a little bit beyond an hour. Okay. But uh, this is the biggest chapter. This is there's a, there's so much in this chapter that we haven't even touched on. Um, but he's really making the case that that this is fundamentally what's so important to have this liveliness uh, in the world. And so this chapter is good to wrestle with. There's another chapter coming up. Uh, it's not the next one, but it's coming up all about diversity. And so he talks more about this idea of the the visual. Uh, variation and how important that is from Mm -hmm. a design standpoint. Yeah. So thank you for listening uh, to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. If you haven't already subscribed, uh, we recommend you do. You can uh, sign up on uh, SoundCloud or Stitcher or iTunes or wherever. Uh, Make sure you don't miss that. Also, if you want to rate this show. Oh, yeah, you can do that. We recommend that you do a five-star rating. (laughs) We do. Uh, but obviously don't, you know, violate your conscience or anything if you can't go any higher than four and a half. Um, yeah, absolutely. That would be great. And uh, leaving comments and uh, things like that, we really appreciate. So thanks for listening. <laughs>